Well, good morning. I am really glad to be with you today, partially because I have a pretty good impression of you all. Uh, a few months ago, as I was interviewing for the position at Redeemer, I was talking to Pat about his job now, and both of us were in campus ministry before we went into the local church setting. And so I said to Pat, I really like what I'm doing right now with students. I get to hang out and and play video games and get paid for it, and it's a pretty good gig. Like, why should I do the church planting thing? And Pat said, well, I loved my job in RUF, but I love what I'm doing with Fountain Square even more. And I thought, wow, he likes his congregation, which I don't know how common that is, but he really likes you. And so I'm really glad that I get to be with you today. So, so thank you for that. Uh, also, thank you, Pat, for choosing the Luke version of this parable, the parable of the minas. Brennan was just pointing this out on the paper. Uh, in Michigan, we have a different translation of the other version of this parable, the parable of the talents. We call it the parable of the talents. And I didn't think you could really deal with that for 30 minutes, so we're going to be with the Minas this morning. Um, so, this parable is a little bit overwhelming, I think. Uh, there's a lot going on in it, and it's very, very difficult, and I know it's very difficult because none of the preachers that I listen to for help have ever touched it. So, it's, I'm on my own this morning, but it's okay, because I had to really work and learn what this thing meant uh, and I, it's been very, very beneficial to me. So big picture, uh, there are three kinds of characters in the story that's being told. There is the nobleman who goes away to Caesar's palace, not Las Vegas, but the actual Caesar's palace. And he gets this little certificate that says, hi, I'm Scott, I'm your king now. And he comes back to this place where he was living and he is going to present the certificate to his neighbors around him, which we're calling in this parable the citizens. So there's the citizens, there's the noblemen, and then there are the servants. And the servants are like, if this guy's the head of a Fortune 500 company, these are his employees. So he's employing them, he's leaving, he's coming back to see what they've done, and then there are the citizens, the neighbors that are surrounding. Now, I think helpful to understanding why Jesus chooses this particular parable is that a few decades before Jesus tells the story, there is a situation in a Jewish territory that's owned by the Romans where a man named Archelaus is appointed to be king over local Jewish territories. Now, Archelaus had, an, he had a reputation for being an anti-Semite. So when he goes to Caesar's palace to get his little certificate that says, I'm king now, the Jews send a delegation of about 8,000 people over with him, and they say, hey, just as a general policy, we don't think anti-Semites should rule over Jewish people. And Caesar says, good point. So he lowers the man's status. And then things are not pretty after that. This is what's going on in readers' heads as they're hearing this story. Jesus is saying, I'm not Archelaus, but there are some interesting overlaps between what I, my relationship with my people and that relationship there. Okay. Now, what I want to focus on today, because I think this is what Jesus wants us to focus on, is I want to focus on the time... When the master, the nobleman, is away, and he's receiving his certificate of kingship, 
And then he leaves his servants in charge of his assets. He gives each of them a mina, which is just a little bag of coins, not worth very much, but, but it is something that is going to determine uh, how the master reacts to these servants afterward. And I want to think about this. You know, what is a coin? What is this thing? The answer to that question, it all depends, doesn't it? It depends. If we have any uncles in here, you might have gone to your nephew at some point and said, Hey, I have this shiny coin right here, and I have this old crumply dollar. Which one do you want? And they say, Ooh, I want the coin. And then you think, Oh, I'm so clever. Uh, I understand the economy, and he doesn't. Uh, but in the toddler's economy, that's actually correct. You ever think about that? Maybe he's right about that. Like, the coin is legitimately shinier. And he could take that coin, and he could put it in his Play-Doh, and he could have a little plaque, and he could take it out, and there would be a little imprint of George Washington, and that'd be cool. I mean, to him, the dollar is just coloring paper that somebody else already used, right? In his world, the coin is more valuable. So the way you interpret this depends on the world you live in. In 1803, America purchased Louisiana, the state, for $15 million. That is one quarter for six acres. I mean, that's six acres of swamps, so, you know, it's not exactly six acres. Uh, but $15 million for a whole state. So in 1803, if you look back then, then this means six acres. Today, $15 million can buy you a 30-second Super Bowl commercial for the New Orleans Saints, right, who are in Louisiana. But in 1803, that's what this meant. That's what this quarter meant. It depends on where the future is going, what you think about this quarter. Um, I suppose that's the debate we're kind of having right now when we talk about Bitcoin. Uh, I had a student in my former college ministry try to describe what Bitcoin was to me. It took about 30 minutes, and I knew less about Bitcoin after than when I knew nothing about Bitcoin. But what I do know is that it's digital currency. And if everybody is going to be using digital currency in the future, then this means nothing. This is not valuable at all. But if we're all going to be using Bitcoin in the future, then one of these digital coins, that means a lot. If the future is headed that way. So the way you value this, it all depends on the kind of story you're living in. What happened before this? What kind of a world do we live in now? What might be happening in our future? And that's actually Jesus' big point in this parable. At the very beginning of the parable, he's, he starts out by saying he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was coming immediately. This is the story that Jesus is speaking into. He's speaking about the story that um, goes something like this. There's going to be a period of time where we are waiting for God's kingdom. Now, by God's kingdom, they're thinking of this time when God will reign over all heaven and earth. He will bring healing and justice and peace to everything. Okay? So there's this time of waiting before God's kingdom, and they would say, this is the time we're living in, the before times, and then there will be the after times, the times when the kingdom shows up all at once, 
and everything is fixed. There's the before times and the after times, which means that right now, they would say, we're just in the time of waiting. We're in the time of waiting. And if they looked around society around them, that would make sense. They would say, well, God's kingdom clearly isn't among us because we're under Roman conquest. Our temple was destroyed and then rebuilt by Toys R Us. It's nothing like the one that we had before. Nobody respects our scriptures. Nobody cares about religious ethics. So clearly, I mean, we are living in the before times. And all we're doing right now is we're just waiting for the kingdom of God to come. But if you're living in the time of waiting, there's only one thing to do. What should you be doing if you're living in the time of waiting? You should be waiting, right? That's really all there is to do. You just wait. You just wait, and you hope someday the kingdom comes around. And you could maybe tell people about it, but that's, that's really all there is to do. You just wait. I don't read magazines very often. I don't know if you read actual physical, like, glossy magazines. The only time I ever do that is if I'm sitting in a dentist's office or a doctor's office. I'm just sitting there, and I'm waiting. There's nothing to do. And I don't want to talk to the people around me. I don't want to know why they're there. They don't want to know why I'm there. So, 80 things to do to spook your kids on Halloween. Sure, why not? I don't know. Sure. I don't really care about that, but it's something to occupy my time while I'm waiting. I'm not going to invest in the doctor's room. I'm not going to build community. I'm not going to start cleaning the doctor's room. I'm not going to make suggestions about how they can make things more efficient. Well, I might do that, but that would be after. The point is, if you're in the waiting time, all there really is to do is wait. And wait and wait and wait. And this is Jesus' critique of the religious leaders that he's speaking to with this parable. In Matthew chapter 23, this is what he says to the religious leaders. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of Gehenna as you are. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, the kingdom of God is here, but you don't enter it. You wait for it, and you talk about it, but you don't embody it. You're encouraging people toward this kingdom, but you're not embodying it. You're calling people into this kingdom to come, but you're not cultivating the kingdom here and now. You're waiting for the kingdom in the future, but you're not wearing the kingdom that is among you right now. Are you with me? This is what he's saying to them. This is his critique. Now, let me give you a more concrete example of this. About 10, more than that, older than I think I am, over a decade ago, Brent and I were entering ministry for the first time, and we worked at a church on the south side of Indianapolis. The church was in a trailer park village, and so we were seeing about 50 kids on Wednesday night come in who had bad clothes, uh, they didn't smell good. They um, couldn't read. They didn't have good nutrition. 
And about once a month, I would go to the pastor and I would say, hey, could we do something tangible for the kids that are coming into our ministry? So could we give them, um, could we give them good nutrition? Uh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Okay. Do we have people in our church who could tutor those children? Uh, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. Could we build a little skate park for them in our giant parking lot that we don't use so they have something to do after school? No, 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 he would say, we're not going to do that. And then finally, he said this to me. All I want you to do is I want you to get those kids in here and get them saved. That's it. Two weeks later, he gave a sermon in which he described his view of history. He said, you know, history is like a sinking ship. America, our world, it's like a sinking ship. He said, we don't polish the brass from the Titanic. We don't do that. Instead, what we do is we throw life preservers to people so they too can come and wait for the kingdom of God. In other words, the pastor was saying, uh, the mundane things that these kids need, they're not important. They're not important because all we're doing right now is we're waiting for God's kingdom to come someday all at once. But Jesus' point in this parable is that this is not the way history works. The way history actually works is more like this. There's a time before the kingdom. There's a time when the kingdom will arrive. But in the parable, there's actually this third time. This third time when the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully here. And if that's true, Jesus is saying, if it's true that we're living in the time when the kingdom has arrived and you can actually enter it and participate with it, then you should not be sitting around waiting for the kingdom to come. You should be engaging. You should be participating. When you look at your neighborhood, in your household, in your city, in your culture, your call is to take kingdom culture and embody it where you are. This is what Jesus is saying in this parable. So, um, maybe 14 years ago, I had the opportunity to go off to England to study for a couple semesters. And I witnessed St. Paul's Cathedral, which is one of the most magnificent cathedrals in the world. And as we were there, the tour guide gave us a somewhat, probably, surely apocryphal story about how that place was built. He talked about the architect, Christopher Wren, and how he chose the stonemasons that would craft that cathedral. And as the story goes, he went to the first stonemason who was cutting a stone, and he said, what are you doing right now? And he said, I'm cutting a stone. I said, all right, fine. Goes to the second stonemason, and he says, what are you doing right now? I'm providing for my family. Okay, fine. He goes to the third stonemason, and his stone is just perfection. It's beautiful. He says, what are you doing right now? He says, I'm building a cathedral. Christopher Wren said, you're hired. You're the man I want. Why? Because he saw the connection between the mundane thing he was doing now and the cathedral to come. And what Jesus is telling us in this parable is that nothing in your life is just a coin. Nothing in your life is mundane. In this situation, if we're just waiting for the kingdom, then nothing matters in your life. 
But if the kingdom is here, then everything in your life matters. Everything. The way that you do everything is participating in the kingdom of God. So the question that Jesus wants to ask us here is, how is it that you and I can take the simple things in life and cultivate the city to come? That might be the way we engage with our neighbors. It might be the way that you manage your team at work. It might have to do with how you do the laundry. All of it is an extension of God's kingdom arriving now. If you are the citizens of God's kingdom, then everything that your hands touch is an extension of God's kingdom. So the question we're being asked is how can you and I cultivate that kingdom now? And you might say, yeah, but those things you're describing seem so mundane. They seem so little. And Jesus acknowledges that in the parable. In verse 17, he says, you have been faithful with a very little thing. The very little things in your life are all manifestations of Jesus' kingdom, if you are a citizen of his kingdom. Uh, a show that Brent and I like to watch is uh, Top Chef. I don't know what cooking shows you all like, but we're big Top Chef fans. And um, in one of the seasons, Wolfgang Puck, the famous chef, comes and, and he does a little competition for everybody And he says, I'm going to give you guys the competition that I do uh, when I'm interviewing a chef for my restaurant. And of course, we're sitting there thinking, well, what what exotic thing is Wolfgang Puck going to have them create, you know? And he said, I want you to make an omelet. And so he gives them some eggs, and that's it. Everybody has to make an omelet. And after he's tasting these omelets, he disapproves of all of them. He says, I can taste. I can taste the care that you put into this. I can taste how you did this and whether you are a real chef. Like for the real chef, it's not about doing something exotic. It's about taking what's in front of you and creating something beautiful. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that he's not calling you to do something great and exotic. He's calling you to take the little things in your life right now and do them beautifully to cultivate the kingdom where you are, no matter what that thing is that you're called to do. This is the way that Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He says, If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. You see his point. He's saying, if you're part of God's kingdom, then everything in your life matters. Everything that you do can be an embodiment of the kingdom of God here and now. The needs of the kids in your neighborhood, they're not just mundane. They are opportunities to show what the kingdom of God is like. Yes, we do want to call people into God's kingdom, but we also need to cultivate that kingdom now. So we're calling them into a culture that is God's kingdom already. You are God's kingdom if you are his citizens, if you proclaim Jesus as king, which means everything your fingers touch is also part of God's kingdom, which I think can be incredibly encouraging. Everything in my life matters. There's nothing unimportant. Yes, good, except that that could be terrifying. Everything in my life matters. And if Jesus is a harsh master, that is kind of terrifying, isn't it? It is. And if you read this parable, you might get the impression that Jesus is saying he is a harsh master. But let me give you three reasons why that's not true. 
Number one, when the nobleman goes off to Caesar's palace and the delegation is sent after him and they complain about him, what does Caesar do? Nothing. Why? Because Caesar looks over the man's character and he says, no, you're wrong. This man has upstanding character. You have no legitimate complaint against him. In fact, what you're doing is treason, which is why the story ends with treason. You're trying to defame a good man who does not have any kind of uh, reputation for anti-Semitism or anything else you might accuse him of. He is a good, upstanding man. Number two, when the evil servant who's hidden his coin in a little cloth comes to the master at the end of the story, he says, I knew that you were a harsh and wicked master. And the master doesn't say, you're right, good point. He says, you knew I was a wicked master. That's why you hid your coin, those mundane things in your life. You didn't invest them in my kingdom. He says, if you really knew that, you would have put that money in the bank. He's calling his bluff. He's saying, you knew I wasn't a wicked master. You know that. You know that I'm a generous master. You're the one who's harsh. Don't blame that on me. You know that I am good to the people who serve me. You're the one who's not being good. And then notice the way he treats the other two servants. Uh, they take one coin. They invest it. They take that mundane thing. And they cultivate the kingdom where they are. And, and the master says, okay, you took that one coin and you made it five. You can have five cities. Okay, you took that one coin and you made it ten coins. You can have ten cities. And, and commentators have looked at this and they said, oh, Luke must be confused. Uh, ten coins doesn't equal ten cities. He must have gotten that wrong. It, no, Luke was not confused. He's talking about the incredible, lavish generosity of Jesus. And the point isn't you should be more like the guy who made ten cities instead of the guy who made five cities. The point is everybody got cities. That's ridiculous. Right? It's like that old Brian Regan joke where he talks about how he learned early on that if he goes and participates in the t-ball game, he gets a snow cone no matter what. Right? It doesn't matter if I win or lose, I'll take a red snow cone. Right? I get snow cones either way. That's what Jesus is saying in the parable. You get snow cones either way if you just participate in the kingdom. You just have to participate. And then you get cities. Everyone gets them. And, and Jesus' point is, it doesn't matter your ability. You still get this wild, lavish reward of participating in the new heavens and earth when my kingdom fully arrives. I don't know how many of you guys know uh, Kyle Ragsdale, but he is an elder at Redeemer, your sister church, uh, a really brilliant artist. We had the opportunity on Friday night to go see his uh, kind of display in the Harrison Center and you just look at the paintings on the wall and you think, okay, here's the kingdom of God. I mean, Kyle thinks of what he does as a manifestation of God's kingdom. And, and people aren't necessarily being converted through those paintings. And yet, it's an embodiment of what God's kingdom is like. It's playful. It's fun. It's beautiful. But if you ask Kyle why it is that he's able to create that kind of thing, he will always tell you, that it started in somebody's kitchen when he was a little awkward junior hire who was uh, not sure how to be a male artist in a place that was kind of, you know, beat my chest. And every afternoon, he would go to his neighbor's house, and he'd sit at the counter, 
and she'd serve him a sandwich, and she would say, Kyle, God made you to be an artist. That's what you are. God loves you the way that you are right now. And it was out of that safety, and it was out of that respect, that Kyle started to embody that kind of thing. It was out of that safe relationship that Kyle will still say, I still create out of that safe relationship when I create things. And this is ultimately what Jesus is saying in this parable. He's not saying, you better work hard or else. He's saying, hey, um, this is a really easy game. Just participate, and everyone gets prizes. And so out of the safety of this relationship, could you just not be harsh about me and just play the game? I'm here. Everyone gets a snow cone. You get a snow cone. You get a snow cone. And it's out of the transformative safety of Jesus' kitchen table, which is what we're about to enjoy together, that we too can be people who playfully, creatively cultivate the kingdom wherever we are. So I don't know what that is for you this week. Where is it that God's calling you to cultivate this kingdom? Is it at your workplace? Is it, is it in your household? Is it in your neighborhood? No matter where it is, Jesus promises that this is a space of safety and transformation and love. And that extension of Jesus' kingdom he's given to you, it's not something he's holding over your head. It is a gift. It is a gift.